I feel like by now, I really should have credited our intro, which is, of course, Waterfalls by TLC. Such a fantastic song and a great vibe for a podcast introduction. And I just want to let TLC know that I'm using it out of pure appreciation. So if the 10 seconds of fair use law no longer is in effect at any point, don't be angry as I'm doing this out of love and only love. It's not worth being sued over because my bad singing was already a big enough price to pay. And now the whole world knows about it. So that's awesome. But damn, let's get into it because the cat came back again. And Robbie and I have so much to talk about in sports, mainly the Euro Cup and the NBA playoffs. But before we begin, I believe Robbie has a brief announcement. Well, Greg, thanks for having me back. Um, great singing, by the way. I don't know what you're talking about with this trash voice. I thought it was excellent, and the lyrics were better than the first version. But for Dude, my I, big, an- I don't want to get sued. Okay, <laughs> but for my big announcement, I would like to say, continuing off of my last announcement on Potty Train Me, that on Etsy, the Potty Train Me merchandise has been upgraded to socks stickers and yes the rumors are true from last time even a beach towel um personally i have already done two separate orders i got a royal blue potty train me shirt and i'm very happy with the order not only is it comfortable but it's also super fashionable and then i also got a sticker and i had a really original idea i thought why don't i put a sticker on a hydro flask and That's since, so then, good. since then, I've seen so many people do the same. So I'm a trendsetter. I'm glad that I got the sticker and I just had an order of 20 more. So be on the lookout for those. Um, and I would just like to do a little bit of friendly gloating here that I was, in fact, the one to be able to break this story before Adam Schefter, Ian Rappaport, or even Tom Pelissero. So I feel pretty good about myself for that sorry guys you're gonna have to get better sources next time damn wow we got a young journalist in the house and a trendsetter hey way to start that because i think i'm gonna start doing stickers on my hydro flask all right well i already got a patent on it though so you gotta credit me if you do why would i not credit you okay good just making sure we're on the same page we're always on the same page Jeez. okay but into the sports the Euro Cup is happening. It's technically Euro 2020, which feels weird to say and see. But nonetheless, we're here. Uh, I'm really glad because this was supposed to be the summer of it's kind of like scrounging in soccer. We have the rotation of World Cup, Women's World Cup, Euro Cup, and then the summer of nothing, which it turns out last summer was actually literally the summer of nothing. And I mean, while it sucked, it actually is great for this year because we have Euro Cup, Copa America, and the Olympics in August. So, And the continuation of the NBA playoffs in the summer, which we usually don't get. So it's been a summer full of sports activity. Well, you touched on it right there, and that's kind of why we don't really have a theme for this episode because just so much is happening at once. But in terms of the Euro Cup, I kind of want to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. And the moment of the tournament so far was obviously Yusuf Paulsen's goal for Denmark 
just 99 seconds into their match against Belgium, the number one ranked team in the world. But let's back up to why that was so important by beginning with the ugly. Well, I think the obvious ugly of this tournament was Christian Eriksen collapsing on the pitch uh, late in the first half again in Denmark's opening game against Finland in Copenhagen. Um, we kind of put it on before your graduation. Just was like, oh, cool, soccer's back. And then it ended up being a really heavy experience when we saw Eriksen being treated by medical staff and we weren't sure whether, you know, it was maybe a little exaggerated because soccer does have a, a deserved reputation for having a lot of flopping. Um, but then the situation escalated very quickly as we saw him receiving CPR and his teammates circle around him. And just by the look on your faces, you could tell that something was really wrong. Yeah, we were all kind of distracted. And I just want to correct everyone that it was a virtual graduation stream, not in person, because we are the type of people who are shameless enough to just be watching soccer in the middle of an in-person graduation. I would like to say if it was in person, we still probably would have had the game on, though. That is totally fair. And anyway, we were kind of distracted. Our house was like 75% moved out at that point. So we have a TV and chairs. Don't even know if we had a coffee table at that point. And we're all just sitting. It's like 9 in the morning. We all went out the night before. I took you guys out to the jungle of Isla Vista, which for you, that was normal territory. And for Natalie, it was scene territory. But for the parents, that was a little bit of an experience. But I just figured, like, why not? Our parents even got to deal with uh, passing strangers in IV at night when our mom got her laugh mocked. Yeah, there's been a lot of assholes late at night in IV. And I'm not going to act like I've never <laughs> been one of those people. But... Yeah, our parents got mocked, particularly my mom, and then we had to shout some things back at them. But back to a more serious matter. So we're all distracted. We figure that it was sad, too, because we're all like, oh, he's fine if a guy's on the ground for so long. Because we've seen, particularly in men's soccer, people flop and stay down for so long to a point where it feels kind of absurd. I mean, just taking like Neymar, for example, I feel like we liked him a lot more when he was younger and kind of a rising star. And then was he, he, when he was more established, not as much because he just really got into the theatrics and it's kind of frustrating to watch. But meanwhile, Christian Erickson is on the ground and slowly, but surely you start thinking, Oh, whoa, this is really serious. And then you're like, this is really serious. They didn't really have the cameras on him, but every possible signal that we could get was not exactly pointing us in a positive direction. I mean, like I wasn't sure that he was dead, but by the time he left the field, I was certainly prepared for that possibility. Yeah. I think the low moment for me was when goalkeeper Casper Schmeichel and then captain uh, Simone Cayer went up to Erickson's wife who had gone down to the field from the stands and, kind of said something to her and it was really heavy. You could see they were all uh, really emotional knowing that her wife and their good friend and teammate might not make it out. And then the crazy thing was, I, I mean, I wasn't sure that he was, he wasn't going to make it, but 
at the end when they all kind of shielded around him and walked off the field, it seemed like even though the crowd kind of rallied and started cheering, it it, it seemed like uh, he wasn't going to make it given the lack of urgency from the medical team and they didn't show him. Obviously we later found out that he was awake at that time, but the cameras weren't on him and it just seemed really bad. And then, then we had to switch to your graduation. So it was not uh, the ideal way to lead into an Oprah speech. Yeah, it was, you kind of touched on the, just how, how surreal the whole thing was just like sitting there and, you saw the scene of Denmark's coach walk all the way across the field and then walk back with kind of this blank expression on his face, not really knowing how to react. Uh, it's great seeing fans back in the stands, but it was dead silent. I yeah. mean, you couldn't hear anything. I thought the broadcasters did a really nice job of just staying calm, but they obviously had no signal. Kind of what you touched on, you thought we maybe were going to see a helicopter or an ambulance just rush in if there was any chance he was going to be okay. He was covered in like a sheet. They, they covered him up for the most yeah. part. And the only sign of positivity that you alluded to was the crowd just kind of cheering as he got wheeled off the field. But it didn't feel like a, oh, thank God. It just felt like a one giant prayer and last gasp of hope from the fans kind of thing. Yeah, it was horrible. But um, around 15 to 20 minutes later... Um, it broke that he was alive and conscious. And that was one of the biggest reliefs uh, I've ever experienced in my life. And no matter what happens in the rest of this tournament, I'm almost positive that that will have been the best moment for me and a lot of other fans. Yeah, no doubt. And I'm not going to throw that one family member under the bus, (laughs) but it was funny when look, okay. Our family, absolutely we're all very loud and talkative and make a lot of interjections and jokes when things are going on probably way too much but when another family member had gotten news and said oh he's awake and breathing and then said family member from before was like shh because that person really wanted to hear oprah speak we all kind of laughed at how ridiculous it was but uh, it was funny, it, just in hindsight, knowing that he was alive and the absurdity of it all. Yeah, well, now that we're done with the ugly, let's move on to the good. Yeah, there's there's a lot of good. It made me realize that I missed soccer, and we never really got as much into the club thing. I think part of it was that the club season overlaps with school, and soccer games are long. I mean, then again, I know football and basketball games yeah. are too. But well, it also overlaps with a lot of other sports that we like to watch. Yeah, that was my second point, is that it overlaps with NBA season and the NFL and everything. But the international soccer in the summer, we've always really just had a great time with. I mean, I just, I would say since 2006 World Cup was, I don't even know if you can remember that one. I think like 08 Euros was probably my first memory of getting really into international. Yeah, and so... Uh, we've always been really into it and it's just been fun to see good soccer. I mean, a lot of teams have gotten off to really strong starts. You take Italy coming in with three really convincing wins. Uh, France is unsurprisingly looking really dangerous with their roster, the defending world champs. Netherlands got three wins and 
it's cool to see that because their team seems to be pretty new. Like we all know the Netherlands teams from 2010 when they made the World Cup finals and uh, 2014. And but a lot of those guys are gone now because they've gotten older. But yeah, they've been really good. And then of course Belgium uh, has been fantastic as well. Yeah, I mean I'm just excited that it's been such a good tournament so far and looks like it's going to be a promising knockout round because I was worried going in that because of all of the delays uh because of the pandemic and the really condensed club season where a lot of these guys had to play a lot of games which obviously led to a lot of injuries. I thought that maybe a lot of the players wouldn't be as into it um but so far, it's been really good. I think uh, the competition has been there, um, and there's been a lot of exciting matches. Yeah, and then when you look ahead to the knockout stage, which we're going to get to a little bit later, we got some really, really good matchups already. I mean, you think about the NBA playoffs, which we're also going to get to later. Sometimes the first round isn't all that exciting because you figure the one's going to beat the eight, the two's going to beat the seven pretty convincingly. But that's not going to be the case in this knockout stage. Yeah, I mean, especially in soccer. That's one of the great things about it. I mean, I guess good and bad. But I feel like there can be a big difference in skill in terms of two teams. And there can just be like one lucky goal and uh, a stellar defensive performance. And the worst team can edge out the victory. Yeah. And another thing under this umbrella of good is... Denmark and how they've responded. So we talked about them scoring 99 seconds into the game, which was really, really cool to see. I mean, we are both big sports people and we'll get into a team pretty easily, but to feel that kind of emotion from watching a game for a country that I was pretty indifferent on about a week ago was so cool. And that goal went in and you could just see, and obviously the crowd was going crazy, but it was more the players all running to hug each other and the goalie Schmeichel screaming from his end and the coach just like losing his mind on the sideline. Like you don't always see crazy emotion out of coaches in soccer. Yeah, no, absolutely. And even though Denmark did end up losing that game, that was still a really special moment and one of the highlights of the tournament. And I look forward to watching Denmark and the rest of the tournament play with that added emotion um, because of Christian Eriksen. Yeah, and Denmark will be in the knockout stages because of how they responded in the next game against Russia, which they really had to win because they lost their first two. So not only did they have to win, but they had to get some help on the goal differential and they needed Belgium to also score against Finland, which took longer than it should have, which we're also going to get to in a second. Yeah. But so Denmark, they go up one nothing. It's great right before halftime. Then they get a gift of a second goal when the Russia defender just makes a mistake in clearing the ball back to the keeper. But then Russia gets awarded a PK. They make the PK. All of a sudden, it's looking a little scarier, and Denmark needs to score. And then... How about that goal from Christensen to give them the goal differential they needed? That was after three impressive saves by the Russian goalie right before that. But then the ball rolled out by the box and Christensen just runs in and blasted it not too high, just perfectly into the back of the net. 
Yeah, that was a crazy experience watching that game concurrently with the Finland-Belgium game, which also had implications with Denmark's fate in the knockout round. Um, so yeah, you touched on it, that Christensen goal was really what made it seem like Denmark was in fact going to go to the knockout stage. And then obviously a few minutes later, they had a security goal. Um, but yeah, it was a, an emotional roller coaster for a new Denmark fan. Yeah, that was, I mean, how pissed off were we for those 15 minutes between Belgium's goal getting disallowed simultaneously with Russia getting a PK uh, it just it just felt like a nightmare because goals aren't easy to come by. Yeah, well, we will get more into that later. But one more thing I wanted to talk about for the good was the way that Group F ended. I thought that was super exciting. Uh, the group of death definitely lived up to its expectations. And props to Hungary for remaining competitive in a group where they were very clearly the least talented team. Um, but I just thought... It was so crazy that uh, during the course of those two games on Wednesday, Portugal occupied every single position in the group at some point. Wow, I actually didn't know that despite all the moving up and down the ladder that different teams had. So that's a really interesting stat that you bring up there. But uh, actually, before I go into my whole group F spiel, do we know Christensen's first name? I'm a little suspicious that Christensen could be Eric Christensen, Christian Eriksen sneaking back onto the pitch, defying health orders. I don't know. I think they should look into it. Uh, Okay, probably not, but Michael (laughs) Jordan definitely would have found a way to sneak back in, and that is not like a knock on Christian Eriksen at all. It's more a knock on Michael Jordan for being (laughs) psycho. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We also keep calling Christensen Victoria because of our friend Victoria Christensen. Early shout out. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't. I kind of don't want to know at this point. I'm just going to keep flip-flopping between Eric and Victoria. Yeah, uh, ignorance is bliss, as they say. Wow, you are just a poet. <laughs> but, okay, so Group F, uh, Portugal, France, Germany, Hungary, that is the... 2014 world champions, the 2018 world champions, and the 2016 Euro champions all in one group with Hungary. So they're pretty clearly the underdogs. But, yeah, like you said, they lived up to their hype. Like, both France versus Portugal and Germany versus Hungary, which were played at the same time, which I love the soccer does that. That would be really annoying. Otherwise, if they didn't. um, What a wild two hours it was for the knockout stage implications though, because first it was like, Oh, Portugal is going to win the group and Germany might be eliminated. Wow. And then it was like, Oh, France is going to win the group, but Portugal's still going to go through and Hungary might sneak in as a third place team because four of the six third place teams advance. And then it's Portugal getting third and Germany going through while Hungary's eliminated. Oh wait, two minutes later, Germany is in danger of being eliminated again because Hungary scored right back. And oh my goodness, Germany equalized and is back in it while Hungary is now out of the tournament. So if that was hard to follow for you, same here, dude. Total chaos and excitement that ended with France winning the group, Germany coming in second on goal differential, and Portugal advancing as a third place team. So sadly for Hungary, the road ends here, but they put up a hell of a battle 
in the group of death and probably did better than just about anyone would have expected. So, yeah, so I, I'm glad that we get to see three of those teams continue to play in the knockout stage because that was an exciting group to watch. Portugal versus Belgium. That is a tough draw for Belgium for winning their group. Yeah, and getting nine points. It's like, oh, your reward is that you get to play Cristiano Ronaldo in Portugal. Cue me doing the celebration. <laughs> um, but we covered the ugly. We covered a lot of the good. Let's cover some of the bad. VAR, it sucks. Yeah, I mean, if you've talked to anyone in our family, you know that we've never been a big fan of VAR. Um, we think that it messes with the flow of the game. Um, it asks refs to play God when a lot of the times the stuff that VAR is looking at is kind of arbitrary. If it's like a push or like a slight skim of the hand when it's not clear if it's against their chest or not, which is technically legal. But I thought that, um, I can't remember what game it was or which announcer it was, but someone had a really interesting point about VAR. Um, I think it was right after the Lukaku goal, they were saying it. It's that because VAR allows the refs to let the play go on, but then they're also allowed to retroactively go back and look to see if there was a potential foul or a handball, it opens up the possibility for any goal getting called back a matter of minutes later or them finding a PK on a previous play, which kind of makes it so that as a player or a fan, you don't really know if what you're witnessing in the game is real because they might go up in the booth and decide that there was a PK or no, the goal didn't count. So as I said earlier, it messes with the flow of the game. Yeah, so I've had some really interesting discussions about this with people on the other side of the issue because I really do want to have productive discussions and not just be so stubborn to be like, no, I hate it and I won't hear anything else because there are fair arguments to be made for both sides, but I really feel like it has not impacted the game in a positive way in the same way that the coaches challenge in basketball has this year or NFL replay, even though sometimes it's a little bit overdone. I understand the desire to get things right in a game where one decision or one goal carries so much weight on the outcome, but it feels like it hasn't even reduced the amount of errors because like what VAR looks at a lot of the time, which you said is really already something that's arbitrary. So the Lukaku goal against Finland, not the one he did score, the one that got called back around minute 60 or so. That is a great example of VAR's flaws. And if you care to go back and look at it, if you're listening, so maybe like one person, uh, because even looking at the replay, he didn't seem offsides. So then to go back and be like, well, he may have technically been in front of the last defender by an inch, even though it didn't really impact the play. Let's take the goal off the board. Like to me, that's just as bad as missing a slight offsides in real time that possibly did impact the team's chance to score. Like that's what I'm talking about with reducing the errors. 
I don't really think it's reduced the errors. I think it's just created different errors. And I, I don't know. I just, I don't like it for a lot of the reasons you said, but I think that's probably my strongest argument is like, has it really reduced the errors? If you don't catch it in real time, I don't know. And, and I do want to talk about the comment I made way back in episode one, where I talked about the Brazil USA women's world cup soccer game in 2011 and how they let Brazil retake the PK because they said hope solo jumped off her line early and how I went back and looked at that video at all the different frames. And I said, I don't even know if I can definitively say that she did like it is a split second decision, but the bottom line is they saw that in real time and they called that in real time. So would I have wanted them to go and look at that with how close that was and be like, eh, you know what? VAR says that she didn't jump off her line. So it's a save. Even though I was rooting for the U S I would have been like that stupid. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's not really the point of refing is to catch every little foul or every little handball and just try to make the game perfect so that everyone's always following the rules. I think like there's something to be said for, calling a game in live action. And if there is a foul that seems obvious based on the circumstances of the game, or if the handball like is like particularly like detrimental to the team, then go ahead and call it. But it seems like with VAR, there'll just be some cross in the box and graze defender's finger. And that's something that wouldn't be called in real time because you wouldn't notice it but then you can go back and look and technically see that, okay, sure, it did touch their hand. If you're following the exact rules, it should be a PK. But I don't know. That just doesn't seem like me, like that should be the point of officiating in sports. I think that a lot of it is circumstantial and should have to do with the essence of the game more than technically following every single rule. Exactly. And what really constitutes a foul? Like, I understand the same can be said for pass interference in the NFL or a foul at the hoop in basketball or whatever. I get that there is some level of subjectivity to it all. But especially in soccer, when the game is so free-flowing, people like to flop and sell a little bit. And a lot of times, people do touch the ball before a defender's leg, which in a lot of senses, it's clean. Like, what really constitutes a foul? So when you go and if you miss something that leads to a goal for somebody and it's a game killer, I feel like looking at any potential foul in the box in slow motion when it could look worse or the times where a ball may have grazed somebody's fingers and not really impacted the play and just essentially searching for PKs is a game killer in the same way. Yeah, I mean, and if it's one thing, if it's something that's like not subjective in any way, like did the ball cross the land? Like I don't have as much of a problem with goal line technology because that's something that's like a clear and obvious rule. So it's like, okay, I can see how if someone hits the crossbar, it bounces into the goal clearly, but the keeper hits it out right away and the ref wasn't able to see. And then, they didn't call it a goal and the team ends up losing because of that. I could see why, you know, people would want that to be an addition to replay if we have that sort of technology. 
But as you we've said many times, when it's just arbitrary, I don't think that's the point of uh, officiating. Yeah, I'm pro goal line technology because that's a big difference of did the whole ball go over the whole line? Is it a goal or not? That's something that can be reviewed, decided. And by the way, that was the case in the 2014 World Cup when they had goal line technology, but not VAR. And when I talk about VAR and why I don't like it, I really try to refrain from sounding like somebody who just wants to whine about it or make all these arguments that sound like I'm complaining more than really engaging in a discussion. But I hate to say it, it has negatively impacted the underdog more times than not. I mean, do you agree? Yeah, uh, absolutely. It seems like the countries with less resources or developing countries often are the ones who get screwed over, whereas, you know, the soccer powerhouses often in Europe are the ones who benefit from it. But I would also like to say that for how much we do root for underdogs and, you know, the fact that VAR seems to screw over the underdog countries more, we also consistently don't like it when it is screws over teams we're rooting for. Um, like, for example, in the 2018 Women's World Cup final. 19. Oh, right. 2019. I know you had a big problem with the VAR call. Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up because you're right. I have an issue when it hurts the underdog who already has to play so well just to hang in there with a favorite sometimes. But it bothers me when I'm rooting for a team that is the favorite too. And I like to stay consistent on that. So the final of the Women's World Cup, I think it took 31 minutes for the U.S. to get a shot on goal against Netherlands. And Netherlands was an interesting team, the women's team. They overachieved and fought really hard and had to win some tough games to make it there. And they're hanging in with the best team in the world who seems like the clear favorite to win the title. I mean, don't you feel like when the U.S. had to play France and England in the previous two games that on paper those were bigger challenges than Netherlands? I mean, it definitely seemed like that going into the matchup. Yeah, and so around minute, I don't know, high 50s, early 60s, something like that, Alex Morgan kind of sold herself out in the box to try to make this contact that probably didn't really impact the play very uh, she tried to make it very apparent and I was frustrated to see them go look at that award a PK and see us score that way and credit to Megan Rapino for drilling the PK uh, it's not like I was rooting against the US at that point but I just thought we're already the better team I don't want to see us take a lead like this and I also like Alex Morgan a lot I mean she is a golden bear, so if I had any Alex Morgan slander in my house, I'd probably be killed anyway. <laughs> but it was just the play itself that, you know, I had to take all the bias aside and just be like, do I really like this? And, of course, I am very biased towards Rose Lavelle, but her goal made me a lot happier because it was more in the flow of play, and it doesn't matter who had scored that goal. It was just that type of play was a lot more satisfying to see as a fan than how we took that one nothing lead. Yeah, I mean, if it had just been a one nothing final and the only goal was the Megan Rapino PK, it would have felt a little bit bittersweet as a US fan because 
it would have felt like maybe that goal wasn't entirely deserved if, you know, we're so anti-VAR and then it actually helps us out in the end. But yeah, um, I think we should stop complaining because people are probably tired of hearing it, even though we're obviously right. And let's (laughs) look at some of the matchups for Euro round of 16. Yeah, and by the way, with the VAR thing, I'm not saying you have to agree or disagree. I just wanted to have us both throw our arguments out there, and it's food for thought. Yeah. But knockout stage. So we talked about Portugal versus Belgium. We got the defending Euro champs against one of the tournament's favorites. Um, What do you think about Kevin De Bruyne? I think he's a pretty solid player, and, you know, maybe if he was in the starting lineup um, for this game, I think it might help them out a little bit. Oh, yeah. Are you referring to the fact that he didn't start against Denmark and that subbed in at halftime, and it went from, wow, Belgium's getting outworked and kind of looks like the worst team to, oh, my God, Belgium is one of the best teams in the world. Yeah, I mean, it was either that he had somewhat of a difference or the fact that the teams uh, switched the direction they were going. But, I mean, I guess we'll never know. But another thing... Well, if the wind miles per hour was over eight, then direction plays a key role. Okay, well, we'll have to go back and and look at that for sure. But uh, another thing that I'm super excited about uh, for this matchup is to see... Belgium's pair of brothers. Um, I, I think you're they're, gonna say, they're I know really you're going to say. They're to watch, and they could be, um, wait for it, a major hazard for Portugal's defense. Oh, my God. I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming, but I'll let you have that. Uh, and I see insert laugh track on your notes. So what, do you just want to call it the producer of Seinfeld real quick? <laughs> well, I just thought, you know, whoever decides to edit this, might decide to do so to add effect. Oh, I see. It was a suggestion. Uh, Okay, well, anyway, it could be a hazard, but you can now make fun of me because I do Cristiano Ronaldo's dumb celebration in the living room all the time. (laughs) I just want to say that when you were imitating him the other day, you almost hit your head against the fan. (laughs) It's because the fan is low. (laughs) Or you jump super high. <laughs> but it's definitely not that. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, but yeah, no, I hope that Portugal can... Or I mean, I hope that Ronaldo can at least score one goal in this matchup. Because I always do get a little bit of enjoyment out of watching him do that iconic celebration. It kind of seems like if Portugal does score in this game, though, that there's a 79% chance it's going to be him. Yeah, he seems to get the majority of the goals. Even if he's like really quiet for 80 minutes of the game will either like get a PK or someone will set up a really nice goal for him. Not that he isn't a great player, but he does seem to find the back of the net in one way or another a lot of times. No, that's a very fair point. So Portugal, Belgium, I would call it for sure one of the must watch games of this knockout stage. And yeah, I mean, Portugal just tied the world champs. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see. But the winner of this game is going to play the winner of Italy versus Austria. And Italy has been one of the most dominant teams in this tournament. And they look like a real threat to win it all. Um, I don't think they didn't give up a single goal in the group stage. And they dominated all three of their opponents. Yeah, I mean, like we talked about, 
with 2006, the first World Cup that I really remember. Italy beat France in the finals. But since then, it feels like they have underachieved more than not in these major tournaments. And I know they got to the finals in one of the Euros. What year was that? It was 2012? I think it was 2012 against Spain and then lost like 27 to nothing in the final. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, so Italy, they've looked really, really good. To be fair, I don't really know a whole lot about Austria. Um, Haven't really watched their games that closely, but I would expect Italy to win. Although I feel like we would agree on this and that Italy has a very legitimate chance to win the whole tournament, but we could also just see them losing this first game too. Yeah, they're a very unpredictable team. And given their choky past, I think that despite the fact that Italy are clear favorites on paper, this one could still be an interesting game to watch. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's move to the bottom left part of that bracket and the image that I'm conjuring up in my head that I got from Twitter. France versus Switzerland. Yeah, uh, this is a rematch of that one 2014 World Cup group stage matchup where France won 5-2. to two, And I remember they literally called a goal off in the last seconds, which I guess isn't that big of a deal given, uh, like, the big disparity. But I just Who's thought goal? France scored to make it 6-2. <laughs> and then they, like, blew the whistle, like, right before they kicked it in. So that was the first time I've ever seen that um, and the only time since. But I I mean, I think if the game is as high scoring as it was in 2014, then Switzerland has a very little chance given uh, France's talent and all the good players that they have. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, as we said earlier, soccer, there you know, there is a big potential for upsets just because of the the low scoring nature of the game and the fact that one goal has such a big impact. Yeah. I mean, look, France has looked really dangerous in all the games that we've watched them play. I know that they had, was it two ties? Yeah. I guess they, they they did tie twice. Yeah. But they still look really talented. It's more about what I'm seeing on the field as opposed to on the scoreboard. So if you're Switzerland, I feel like you better hope for a tie and then PKs because it's not that they can't win. I just feel like that's probably on paper their best chance to win because France is just such a tough out. Yeah, but I would like to say if Switzerland does edge out a victory and maybe number 10 on the squad plays a big role and they make a little run in the tournament, they might have to create a new theme song for the 2020 Euros And I think I have an idea. We get Shakira to come back and do a little remix of the 2010 South African World Cup song. It's going to be called Jaka Jaka. Wow. Okay, so I'm not going to sing it because I've already shown everyone what a bad singer I am in the opening seconds of this podcast. But You can do it if you want. I'll give a little preview, but we'll leave the rest for Shakira. Shaka Shaka Eh Eh. Wow. Okay, that was the definition of a quick soundbite. Hey, so short but sweet. Yeah. To if be honest, is bliss, though, short I, and I, sweet. I, I, I would have <laughs> done more, but I only know the Spanish version of the song. I know that the majority of our listeners are English speakers, so I didn't want any confusion. 
Wow, you are so considerate and always <laughs> just looking out for everyone. This is great. Uh, okay, well, I really want to talk about these next two, now that I'm looking at next three matchups, but number one, we got to start down the list because the winner of France-Switzerland is going to play the winner of Croatia versus Spain. So in other words, our favorite team versus the most boring team ever. Just please let Croatia have this one, soccer gods. Yeah, I mean, and I think that all things considered, Croatia should be pretty happy with this draw, especially uh, considering the fact that they were going into the third game of group stage with only one point, not even sure that they were going to make it to the knockout stage. And they ended up getting second place in their group, um, also because of the England-Czech Republic result. But I think Spain is a, a winnable matchup for Croatia. I mean... They were dominant against Slovakia, but prior to that, they seemed like a flawed team. Yeah, 100%. And look, that Spain-Sweden game. So for the record, I have nothing against Spain as a country. Uh, I think, actually, I've never been, but I definitely want to go. It I really beautiful. respect uh, Pablo Picasso's artwork. Nothing yeah. against him. Yeah, great. That's good. Uh the Sun Also Rises, I guess, was not my favorite book. So maybe that's the only thing I have against them. But yeah, look, uh, you know, everyone I've met from Spain or who has been there is like, oh, it's just a wonderful place and all those, there's just wonderful people. So it's something there. But watching this team play soccer is the most boring thing ever. That Spain-Sweden game is 90 minutes of my life that I want back. And I'm still mad at Spain for their 2018 World Cup performance where they scored early against the host Russia and then dicked around passing for like, you know, 70 minutes until Russia equalized at the end. And then ultimately it went to PKs and Russia won when it seemed like they really didn't deserve to be in that position. So I'm all in on the tablecloths for this matchup. But I think that um, Croatia has to score more goals than Spain in this one because we know they aren't going to win the possession tiebreaker. Oh no, I'm expecting a heavy 72-28 at maybe. least. Yeah, what was it against Sweden? I think the final was 85-15. That's ridiculous. In a 0-0 game. Yeah, but Sweden came out on top in the group, so... Thank God, they yeah. deserve it for the, having to go through that. And they will play Ukraine in their round of 16 opener. It's a dream come true. Greg, you said that you wanted this matchup, I think, like a week or so ago, and here it is. Yeah, I love this matchup. I've been waiting for the battle of the same shades of blue and yellow. Look, for all I can tell, Sweden is Ukraine, and Ukraine is Sweden out there. And I just want to say that they should both wear yellow jerseys, because I am all in on Sweden, Ukraine. <laughs> I think they should both wear yellow jerseys, but they should do it AYSO style where the visiting team has to wear pennies to differentiate. <laughs> that would be one of the greatest looks I've ever seen in pro big stage sports. <laughs> but yeah, it is going to be tough to tell these two teams apart in that matchup, given that they have the exact same color scheme. So that's what I'm most looking forward to about this matchup. Hey, and we've seen exciting things out of both those teams. Sweden's 3-2 victory over Poland was a great game. And although Ukraine fell to the Netherlands, they were down 2-0 in the second half and equalized in a matter of 10 minutes. 
Yeah, so uh, it could prove to be um, an exciting matchup. But moving on to the next game is England-Germany, and the winner of that will play the winner of the yellow and blue teams. I think all of these games are have the potential to be really fun, and I want to watch all of them if possible. But I think this one especially is a must-watch affair. Oh, 100%. I mean... Two storied soccer nations, for one, and also I think that it's going to be a great game. I mean, that's a tough draw for both of those teams in getting out of the group. Yeah, absolutely. I think that these are two teams also that really have not played to their full potential in the tournament so far, given how talented they are and how many good players they have. So I think that whoever ends up coming out on top in this game has uh could be really dangerous in the rest of the tournament and make a big run and um i personally would enjoy if ian dark could announce this game because i'm going to be rooting for england in this one i'm going to be honest but i think that if they do collapse and lose this game having ian dark in his pessimistic nature on the microphone would make it slightly more bearable yeah really just a sorry efforts from england here <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah I, th- I agree uh british announcers are so hard on their country and it's hilarious i'll never forget england losing to iceland in i think that was the euro cup when yeah, iceland made in, that big uh, run 2016 yeah and the announcers were just tearing them apart. i think it was ian dark as a matter of fact that was amazing yeah so i'm with you there but look so we've watched a lot of tv in the past 17 months and Peaky Blinders is right up there with one of my favorite shows. Oh, it's a great show. It was amazing. Like I'm missing Peaky Blinders and I'm really, really excited for the sixth and final season to come out. So when I'm watching England soccer, even though this is 2020 and that was set in the 1920s, uh, I just can't help but think about all the characters from Peaky Blinders gathering in a bar to watch England soccer and going crazy for it. Can we get a little sneak peek of what that might look like? Yeah, well, first of all, the setting would be in Small Heath. Uh, They would walk into the bar, everyone would clear away, Tommy would get his glass of whiskey, uh, maybe a beer if he was feeling (laughs) like he wanted to have a tolerance break, and then, look, I know I've said this a bunch, but it's just, it's the perfect line. Arthur Shelby would be up on a table and just going, All right, Raheem Sterling. (laughs) (laughs) And then Tommy would be like, Doesn't matter if we win the group, Arthur. Still have four knockout stage games to get through. Well, that was um, a pretty good depiction of what that might look like. And maybe that's what awaits us in Peaky Blinders Season 6. Who knows? Yeah, I don't know, but... I would not want to be with Arthur Shelby if England lost. Oh, I don't think anyone would. Certainly not Linda. Oh, fuck Linda. Sorry, too soon. Ugh. Anyway, so let's go to Netherlands versus Czech Republic. Uh, We talked about Netherlands a little bit and how, despite having a little bit newer of a team, they have just come out on fire. And I feel like they have a chance to go all the way. But don't sleep on Patrick Schick from the Czech Republic because he has the goal of the tournament so far. 
Yeah, uh, totally. And I, I know we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I'm personally really happy to see Netherlands back on uh, the stage of major soccer tournaments after missing out on both the 2016 Euros and the 2018 World Cup. They obviously had that generation of players with Arjen Robin Van Persie Snyder. Woo! <laughs> and uh, second, sorry, actually, no, that's my favorite player ever. And second would be Alex Morgan, Brian Fantana. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I think that it's cool to see them in the tournament, especially given how dominant they seemed in the group stage and the fact that they have a real chance to make a run in this tournament. Yeah, hundred percent. It's uh, it's going to be an exciting one for sure, and I'm probably rooting for Netherlands just because I want to see their potential through. But I don't really have anything against the Czech Republic. Yeah, not at all. Well, the final game in the round of sixteen is we're ending where we started with Denmark, and they're going to go up against Wales. So obviously, we'll be rooting for Denmark after their inspiring response to. Christian Eriksen, but the good news with this one is that if they do lose, I'll still be happy for a small country like Wales. Like, I'm not going to be upset if Denmark loses. Yeah, no, I have nothing against Wales, and I, I think it was super uh, cool to see them make that run in the 2016 Euros five years ago when they got all the way to the Final Four. By the way, people are listening to this just like, how are they remembering, like, <laughs> Oh, yeah, the 2016 Euros when they went to the semifinals yeah. and then lost one nothing to the eventual champions, Portugal. <laughs> we, we don't have much of a life, if you couldn't tell already. Yeah, and I don't even think we can use COVID as the excuse we, anymore. No, we can't, sadly. But uh, much like Croatia, I think this is um, a winnable game for Denmark and uh, a really good matchup for a team that only finished with three points. Yeah, totally. I mean, if you get out of your group... And, I mean, I guess they did finish second. But if you make it out of your group by the skin of your teeth, you can't complain with whatever draw you get. Yeah, I mean, Portugal scored four points and got Belgium, so. Right. Just goes to show. Well, briefly, let's give some final four predictions just for some entertainment. Uh, You want to go first? Uh, Okay, I'll go first. Um, I like Belgium, France, England, and... Lastly, Denmark. I think that they're going to use the emotion from Christian Eriksen as motivation to get through that Final Four. And look, part of my Final Four is wishful thinking because I do like all of these teams and like watching them play. Um, But I mean, I don't want to predict teams that I hate and don't want to see in the Final Four because then that's boring. And I do think that the left side of the bracket with Belgium and France is a little bit stronger. So I like Belgium over England in the final. I think that Belgium is one of the best teams in the tournament, but they're also an aging team. And a lot of those star players are getting old. So I think they only have so many more opportunities and they're going to need to capitalize it on it this uh, tournament. Yeah, well, very interesting Final Four, and I think that's very plausible. I like the Denmark-Cinderella story. I actually have four entirely different teams, but a little bit of wishful thinking in there as well. So first I have Italy. Uh, I think they obviously have the firepower to make it all the way. I think if they have to match up against Belgium, it's going to be a crazy game. And I do like your Belgium pick because 
all those guys are getting a little bit older. So it feels like if it's going to happen, it's got to happen soon. But I don't know. Italy, for some reason, I just kind of like it. Um, I'm going to go Croatia, which is very much wishful thinking because I am devoted to the tablecloths. But look, if Croatia can get France in the quarterfinal and we get a rematch of the World Cup final in which, of course, France deserved to win. I'm not saying that. But it did not appear to be as close of a game as it should have. Like, it was 4-1 at one point, and I was like, Croatia is not and is not playing that much worse than France. I think it was just a couple things gone wrong, a couple VARs. Um, And look, I was just... Croatia is just so fun to watch and they play with so much heart. And so I'd like to see them get that revenge. So I'll take Croatia to catch France off guard and uh, like get to the it. final four. I'm also going to go with Sweden. I don't really Wait, know you sure why. You didn't mean to pick Ukraine? No, I meant Sweden, okay, okay. but if Ukraine makes it, I want full credit as well. <laughs> no one's going to be able to fact check you, so you're good. Yeah, I'm chilling. Um, so I, I'm going to pick Sweden and. I don't know why I didn't go with England or Germany. I think part of it is that game itself is really hard to predict. But Germany seems like the obvious choice. But I just, I don't want to pick them because this is the most vulnerable I've ever seen their team in our soccer watching lifetime. And so they definitely have flaws. Of course, they could get to the final four. But I don't know. Sweden's been playing really well. Uh, They've been exciting and they have a lot of, guys that can score a lot of offensive skill. So soccer is weird. I'll go with Sweden. And then finally, I'm going to take Netherlands uh, as much as I would love to see Denmark make a Cinderella run. Netherlands just seems like they got it all clicking right now. And I actually have Netherlands over Italy in the final. I would love to see Italy get it done too, but Netherlands is just, you know, I'm with the orange right now. I don't know what it is. Um, Maybe it has something to do with the Dutch waitress that we made friends with during graduation week. I was just going to ask about that. I mean, you did promise to her that you were going to be rooting for Netherlands in the Euros. So I'm glad to see that you're uh, living up to that promise. Yeah. And this is after our cousin convinced me when I was like, oh, you're going to be watching the Euro Cup that she just said yes as like a blow off answer and didn't care about soccer. And then she returned and we started really talking about soccer. Yeah, so take that, Owen. No, not Owen Finney, that is, by the way. That's Oh, no, that's, no. yeah. I would never rag on Owen Finney. How could you? Uh, great. So we've gotten a lot of soccer talk in, and I'm really pleased with how this episode's going, but we haven't even gotten to the NBA playoffs yet, which, to me, I've been calling this the most unpredictable playoffs since 2011 when the three-seed in the West, Dallas Mavericks, went on this magical run and won the championship. They swept the Lakers in the second round. Uh, They beat Kevin Durant in the Thunder in the very young days of KD in the conference finals because the one-seeded Spurs had actually gotten upset in the first round. So they didn't end up facing the Mavericks, but they beat the LeBron, D-Wade, Chris Bosh team in their first year together in Miami. Yeah, I mean, and I know that as... Golden State Warriors fans, we have no right to complain about the emergence of a few super teams and the resulting effect of, you know, there only being two to three teams that you think actually have a chance each year. But 
I personally am enjoying these playoffs because they've been super unpredictable. And I thought that the Nets were definitely the clear favorite going in, but then uh, the injuries ended up leveling the playing field. And I think it's been cool to see, uh, you know, a more balanced level of competition, which has led to a lot of new teams and a lot of new players uh, being in the spotlight. Um, And I think that this has made, especially the early rounds of the playoffs so far, more exciting to watch because it it doesn't, you know, it's harder to tell who's going to win each series. I mean, the East first round, granted, that was boring, but the East second round was great, obviously. And then the West has been super exciting and unpredictable the entire way. Yeah, the West is always great. And I'm very much with you. The East first round was like, hey, it was okay. And I mean, Hawks-Knicks was compelling, even though it wasn't a close series. Uh, But since then, it's all been fantastic. And yeah, the favorites from each conference were knocked out before the conference finals even began. Uh, Among the four teams remaining, None of them have won a championship since the NBA-ABA merger in 1976-77. So it's going to be really nice to see a new champion and not just because of some new star that is a past champion that decided to join the team. You know how we said that Italy could very much lose in the round of 16 or they could just go all the way? Yeah. I mean, that's what it's been like watching the Suns. Everyone was like, are they going to get past the Lakers? And then yeah. they did, uh, you know, the Anthony Davis injury sure helped them. But I think it's pretty fair to say that the Suns earned it and it wasn't handed to them. And now they're up 2-0 on the Clippers. Game three happening in just a couple hours. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of this is due to Devin Booker and the fact that it's his first time in the playoffs, but he has not shied away from the moment at all. He's been great and I'm super happy for him because he's been a really good player on a bad team for a long time in an era as I said earlier where a lot of super teams exist and there's a lot of free agency moves he has remained on the Suns the entire career and now he's finally getting his moment on their team so his loyalty is being rewarded yeah for sure and especially when it seems like people were like oh, get him out of Phoenix or get him on a different team or like Booker is overrated or anything. It's like, no, he's been waiting. And now that he has his moment, he's been nothing but ready. And just, I mean, he's a stone cold killer. I know people have said a lot of extreme things about him and he's getting a lot of praise, but I wouldn't say any of it is undeserved or like I we should be sick of it. Yeah, absolutely not. Well, the Suns ended up matching up with the Clippers in the Western Conference Finals, and that is due to the fact that the number one seed, Utah Jazz, best record in the NBA, collapsed in the second round. Yeah, and it wasn't just a collapse to the Clippers. I mean, if Kawhi Leonard was healthy, you look at that series and you think, well, the Clippers underachieved last year and they have the best player on the floor a lot of times having the best player on the floor in series does make a difference. I mean, that is why LeBron James went to the finals like 26 straight years. Right. So, uh, but the crazy thing is they tied the series at 2-2 and Kawhi has an ACL injury. We still don't really know anything about it. There's not really any timetable for his return. If he will return, if it's a partial tear or anything like that. And they beat the Jazz twice, including once on the road. 
And in the closeout game, they were losing by 25 points at halftime. Yep. So Terrence Mann had a breakout game. Paul George, uh, I have nothing against Paul George like as a person or basketball player. I think he can complain a little bit too much at times, but I don't want to see him fail. So I, I am happy for him. Yeah, totally. And I have to say, I was always a little bit skeptical of Ty Lue getting a bunch of credit for the Cavs championship. I thought that, you know, LeBron was the real coach of that team. But after seeing the Clippers resilience in this playoff run, you do have to give him a lot of credit. Obviously, um, his decision to go small and putting Terrence Mann in the lineup really benefited the Clippers and allowed them to exploit Rudy Gobert and ultimately come away with that series. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, if you look at Utah, it's not going to get any easier for them in the West. I mean, the Lakers are probably going to be more healthy next year. Dallas is going to be better. Uh, The Suns are probably going to continue to be good. The Warriors are hopefully healthy and back into title contention with the Splash Brothers. So missed opportunity for the Jazz there. The last thing I want to say about the Suns is that I feel really happy, not just for Devin Booker and Chris Paul, but especially Monty Williams. And it's great to see a new coach come in and do such a great job, specifically a black coach, because you see guys just like a lot of the issue is in pro sports. They just don't get the opportunities. And these guys have gotten the opportunities. I mean, same can be said for Nate McMillan, who took over Mm -hmm. The Hawks midseason, and now they're just on a tear. Yeah. But with Monty Williams, he's getting a lot of credit, especially after that uh, drawn up play for DeAndre Ayton in that last game, which was amazing. But even way before that, I was really impressed with Monty Williams because the Suns are a pretty young team outside of Chris Paul. Like, you got guys like Cam Johnson. Uh, Cameron Payne doesn't really have much meaningful playoff experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mikhail Bridges, DeAndre Ayton, and young guys playing in their first playoff series is hard. Yeah, and I think there's really nothing that critics can say to take away from the value of his coaching and the effect it has had on the team because that team was really built from the ground up. Yes, they had talent, obviously, with Booker and the additions of Chris Paul and DeAndre Ayton and a lot of other young talent, but I'm really happy for Monty Williams, too. I think that he's proved to be one of the best coaches in the league right now. Yeah, he just always has his team calm and ready to fight through any adverse situation, which is really hard as a young team, but... The playoffs aren't over. I don't want to speak too soon, but I think even if the Suns somehow choke before this playoffs are over, you can't really take away from everything that's already happened. No, no way. Um, and I, I mean, that's why I want to talk about it because I feel like it's really easy for narratives to get lost or erased. Yeah. yeah. So even if the Clippers come back and win in six, then no, nothing uh, can take away from the job that the Suns and Monty Williams did. Yeah, and the Clippers are down 0-2 for their third straight series, so... Maybe you could say they have them right where they want them? Maybe. (laughs) I mean, not entirely the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. But, yeah, so 
a lot of stuff. Uh, Clippers Jazz was crazy. I mean, Rudy Gobert just killed Utah, dude. Like, defensive player of the year. Couldn't yeah. defend the perimeter. I mean, yeah. the funny part was I was in the shower during the third quarter. I saw the score get close. I text one of my good friends who I've been texting with back and forth throughout the playoffs, and he's just like, Gobert cannot defend the perimeter, and the Clippers role players are making everything. And I watched the fourth quarter, and it was the same thing over and over and over, and Rudy Gobert was just getting targeted. So uh, poor Jazz. But let's talk some East because we got three teams that we really got to touch on. The first one is the 76ers, who are done. Yeah, I mean, we have to state the obvious. Ben Simmons killed the Sixers. He took, what, zero shots in the fourth quarter games four through seven, or was it five through seven? It might have been four. Yeah, I mean, and then most noticeably in game seven on that pivotal play uh, late in the quarter when the Sixers are down two, Ben Simmons has the ball right under the basket, and then he decides to pass it instead of going up for the easy dunk. I thought that that really kind of encapsulated uh, his playing style and why it was so detrimental for the Sixers. Yeah, it was a great spin move near the baseline, too, and I don't know why he passed out of it. But And look, ever since that Ben Simmons game against the Celtics in 2017, when we were watching the Kentucky Derby at the Santa Barbara Fish House. Here we go again with our ridiculous tangents. But <laughs> ben Simmons missed a wide-open dunk late in the game. The Sixers ultimately lost in overtime and went down 3-0 in the series, and it killed them. And since then, I've liked to make fun of Ben Simmons a decent amount and talk about, like, oh, playoff Ben Simmons back in true form. But after this, I don't feel good about it. Like, that was hard to watch. Yeah. And sure, Ben Simmons can be annoying, and, but the, I, I don't want to see him fail. No, yeah. But he's he's deserving of all the criticizing he's getting because he's not even taking shots. I got to say, though, this has been a great playoffs for Kendall Jenner with her current boyfriend, Devin Booker, being one of the main stories of the playoffs and his greatness being on display. And then her ex, Ben Simmons, uh, really just being criticized heavily and showing that he was his game was super flawed and wasn't ready for the moment. So I have to wonder uh, how much enjoyment she's getting out of this. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I'm just going to ask you this rapid-fire question with a rapid-fire answer because we still got a lot to get to, but is it over for him in Philly, yes or no? My instincts say yes. I feel like the fans hate him so much at this point, and it's clear that it doesn't work, that they're going to try to restructure somehow. Yeah, I think he's done too. I don't think it can be fixed. Uh, Doc Rivers and Joel Embiid's press conferences speak large volumes. So, yeah. um, okay, so that Trey Young guy, I think he's pretty good. I mean, I was just super impressed by his poise and his ability to stay calm in stressful moments for such a young guy and for someone who has no NBA playoff experience, uh, particularly in game seven, when he was having a terrible shooting night, I think it was something like three for 25 at one point, but Whoa. he was in the fourth quarter, just seemed unfazed, playing calm, was making a lot of nice uh, alley-oops to Capella and just seemed like the moment was not too big for him at all. So 
Yeah, I mean, in addition to his talents, he also seems to have the right temperament for an NBA superstar. And he's becoming the perfect villain. Yes. And look, I could talk on and on about Trey Young's effectiveness in an offense and his quickness and his floater game, but also ability to pass when he drives and all that. But I think what's impressed me about the Hawks is they're just a pain in the ass. And I mean that in the most complimentary way. I mean, when... I started really liking watching the Nuggets, and you know this because we talked about it a lot. I was just like, dude, they just don't go away. Like, they just kind of always crawl back, always crawl back, win or lose. They would just never stop. And remember the famous four-overtime game that they lost on the road in Portland? And then they just come out two days later and win the next game. And I was like, oh, what? And just like... And don't say anything about this year because when you don't have your second best player in the playoffs, that means a ton. So I don't want to hear anything about that. Uh, Congrats to the Suns. But uh, yeah, so I was starting to feel like what I'm liking about the Hawks now is what I liked about the Nuggets for so long. Yeah, totally. I mean, I noticed this earlier, but they've won three straight game ones on the road, which is super impressive for such a young and inexperienced team. Yeah, going back to the young and inexperienced credit to not just Trey Young, but Nate McMillan for having his team ready to go. I mean, Madison Square Garden was a pretty hostile environment to go into. And I I mean, I'm sure Philly was too. They have notoriously harsh sports fans. Yeah, we'll see if the Hawks, who just stole game one, can end up coming out of the East. I mean, the five seed in the East did it last year. Maybe it's a pattern. I guess were we'll they the see. five? Were they the, the four? Heat were the five. Okay, yeah. Although I remember that the only reason they were the five is because they literally played the Pacers in the last game of the bubble, and like neither of them played their starters because it had it didn't matter at all since it was all in a bubble, no home court advantage. So the Pacers won the garbage game, got the four sweep, but then got swept. History says five. Yep. Um, The Milwaukee Bucks made it over the hump, which you have to feel good for Mike Budenholzer, Giannis, Chris Middleton, and Drew Holiday. Because especially Giannis and Middleton, they are obviously very good players who haven't really been able to make it over that hump. And they've underachieved two straight years. And this seemed to be the series where they actually would have been forgiven had they lost going against Kevin Durant, who we're going to talk all about in a second, despite him being eliminated. So yeah, good for Milwaukee, right? Yeah. I mean, even though they had technically gotten to this point in the playoffs two years ago, this kind of had a different feel in the sense that they defied expectations and did what they weren't supposed to do by beating what many perceived as the favorite to win it all in the Brooklyn Nets. Um, So yeah, I'm really happy for Giannis and Middleton and uh, Drew Holiday as well, which it seems like the trade for him by the Bucks front office uh, seemed to work out despite the fact that they gave up a lot to get him. Yeah, and the Drew Holiday trade is proving to be effective. I really like what he did in game seven of that net series, because I think he was shooting two of 16 going into the final quarter and he hit three huge shots down the stretch and also defended KD on that last possession in overtime. So uh, really happy for Drew Holiday, but 
the narrative might not stick if they can't get past Atlanta. Yeah, that's true. And I think the sure they did beat the favorite Nets, but it's hard to, you know, put that all on them when obviously Kyrie Irving got hurt and so did other star player James Harden. And although he did end up coming back, he was clearly not the same player. So they do have a a plausible excuse. Yeah, 100%. Um, So we got the Suns, the Clippers, the Bucks, and the Hawks. If you had a quick prediction, give me who wins the finals, how many games, finals MVP. Ooh, uh, this is tough, but I feel like this is a little bit of cheating given that we know the Suns are already up 2-0 and the Hawks are up 1-0, but I'm going to say... Suns over Hawks, Chris Paul Finals MVP. Okay, how many games? Um, six. Okay, I like that. I made this prediction in a halftime of Game Two of Suns Clippers. Okay, so a little less of forward knowledge, but I think Suns over Bucks in seven. Booker MVP. It's a good pick. Yeah. And with finals MVP, you can't not be boring when you pick that because it's pretty rare that someone who's not the best or second best player on a team is going to get it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Malcolm Smith even was probably the best player on that team. So most people were predicting him going into that Super Bowl. Von Miller was actually the best (laughs) player on his team. So, uh, yeah, the Malcolm Smith guy. What a... What a ridiculous Super Bowl. <laughs> I think the real MVP was Manny Ramirez for snapping the ball over Peyton Manning and giving the Seahawks two points like three seconds into the game. Which didn't that same exact play happen on the very next Super Bowl beginning with the safety? Giants-Patriots? I don't think it was the first play. I think the Giants okay. got a safety okay. in a more earned fashion okay, but still pretty ridiculous yeah and then some guy who put a bunch of money down <laughs> on the first points being a safety um oh again God. with the obscure details yeah hey if you're still with us i love you <laughs> uh last thing on basketball because kevin durant will not be winning a title this year but he kind of needs to be talked about Let's talk about this whole Kevin Durant best player in the world debate because I think it's actually a discussion worth having. Uh, It's pretty clear that he is the best scorer in the world. In the last six minutes of regulation of Game 7, I was mesmerized watching that dude go to work. Like The Bucks should have just put them away. The Nets had no business being there, but that guy was going off. Literally an inch away from winning that game. If his foot was a little bit further back, that was a three. Yeah, exactly. Uh, But Robbie, is Kevin Durant the best player in the world? Uh, That's a tough question because I feel like two years ago, before he had injured his Achilles in that finals against the Raptors, he was definitely approaching that point um and then he had the tragic achilles injury that cost him the entire 2020 season um but i don't know i think it's a really tough call because lebron despite the fact that he is beginning to show his age a little bit is still so great and dominant that it's tough to take that title away from him but regardless of who is the best player in the world i'm just happy to have seen him return to his same level of greatness after that tough recovery from the injury. 
Yeah, me too. I mean, I was nervous about that for a year plus to see what was KD really going to look like. And we talked about this uh, on the episode with JJ when the NBA had returned, but I was really relieved to see Kevin Durant come back into form. So my take on the, is he the best player in the world? I think it's interesting that we even get to have this discussion, right? Because LeBron James has been the best player for so long and just a lot of it having to do with pure physical dominance and strength along with winning, which is crazy that he is 36, I think 35. I I don't actually, I got to double check that, but whatever it is, it's like the fact that he's still that good at this age is nuts to me, but I'm going to steal from Monica McNutt and what she said on first take, because I really liked what she said when she was asked if the torch had been passed from LeBron to KD. And she said something akin to, I'm not sure it's been passed, but KD may have done one of these and pretended to like snatch and sort of like just snatched it from him for a moment. And I would say that I'm very much in line with this kind of thinking because saying the torch has been passed implies that it's the beginning of the end for LeBron. And we don't really know that. It's also not fair to say, given how much he has defied age in his career. But I would argue comfortably that those two guys are in a tier of their own and that they can flip-flop on any given night for best player in the world. I think there were certainly moments where I felt like KD was the guy, but it's not such a clear-cut thing where the vast majority of basketball fans would place that kind of label on KD as opposed to LeBron or anybody else. Yeah, well, that's a very interesting take and good job building off of that um, analogy. Yes, thank you very, very much. Uh, Wow, this has been a very great episode. I'm so excited to go watch some basketball soon, too. We're going to cook some dinner we're going to go feed our dog who has been barking. I'm not sure if he made his way into the podcast. It might have been a little faint, but he he tends uh to make his way onto a lot of podcasts. He's, yeah. Uh, he he's a big fan of the microphone. I mean, what can I say? This family has six very strong personalities and, you know, Theo fits right in. I think Theo might be the strongest personality. Oh, he's certainly capable of exploding <laughs> at any given moment. Uh Well, Let's finish off this episode the way that Potty Train Me is always finished off. Shoutouts. You go first, Greg. Shoutout to Mr. Mark the Shark Goyer for knowing how to provide the ultimate restaurant experience. He is just all business. He has no time for messing around. And he commands the table like a king. I mean, just getting some meals with him in Santa Barbara during grad week was hilarious. He's got the glasses that split down the middle so we can put them up, read the menu, put them down. He knows what he's doing. He's not there to mess around. And he has standards, which is the most important thing. I mean, Mark the Shark, dude, I I don't know what else to say. I mean, he certainly knows how to charm a waiter, too. That's for sure. But um, for my shout-out, I want to continue with the theme of uncles. Um, So I'm going to shout-out a struggling local business that has closed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uncle Vito's, um, a nice New York pizza shop in downtown Davis. 
And particularly, I want to mention one of their most loyal employees. He's a bartender, and he has um, a really big day coming up. Um, and I really know that he's going to rise to the occasion. Wow. So that is very niche and out of pocket, but I'm a huge fan of this shout out. I'm actually not going to elaborate on that because those who are listening and understand, they understand. And for those who don't get it, look, some things are better left unsaid. I'm going to steal your thunder with the old phrases. There. <laughs> wow. What a poetic ending. Well, Greg, thank you for having me on. It's uh, been great talking about sports with you. Oh, gee, thanks, Robbie. <laughs> Wait, last last thing, though, is do you think Aaron Rodgers is also thinking about Uncle Vito's? Well, I would just like to say if Aaron Rodgers has made it this far in the episode, he is one of the few people who understood my shout out. Oh, 100%. And, I mean, I hear he tells that story to everyone. Dude, Shailene Woodley 100% knows about it. Yeah, of course. Well, okay, uh, I'm going to just cut it off with the inside jokes there. It's been a fantastic episode. Me, the cat who came back, maybe a little bit of Theo in there. We're going to go watch some NBA playoffs and have a good-ass time with our night. Parents are out of the house, so uh, we're going to just fucking rage. Mom, Dad, if you're listening to this, we're about to tear the place up, baby. Yeah, I mean, the eight kegs just arrived, right? We should probably go load those in. I said 18. Did you order 18? Uh, I'll double check on my phone. All right, we've officially lost all audience at this point. (laughs) Peace and love. Good night. Thank you for listening to this long episode.